0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Monday, August 21st, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. How was your eclipse? Were you in the path of totality? I wasn't. The local real estate agents are marketing it as totality adjacent. Path of totality? Well, it's a path of totality garden. So technically a different zip code, but you share the same sewer and police. I like the eclipse. I had low expectations, and they were ever so slightly exceeded. So basically like every Foo Fighters album. You know what I liked about the eclipse? I liked the camaraderie. I liked the community. Here in New York, when you see a crowd of people looking upwards, usually means we got a jumper. So it was nice that we were just watching a natural phenomenon. Though... Jumping can not be that too. And of course, there are always lots of large gatherings in New York. But you know, I was thinking to myself, this one felt different. I was trying to figure out why. So I was going through all the other gatherings where a bunch of people get together. You know, gatherings like sport events or St. Patrick's Day or the 4th of July or the 190 parades we have, New Year's Eve. So what made this one different? And I figured it out. No one was drunk. It was a large gathering, a brief gathering. But a large gathering, which unlike all the other ones, you didn't see Fitzy and Sully deciding to get into the spirit a little early, or a bunch of girls on the LIRR from Comac riding and pre-gaming, or uh, the Ruspano brothers didn't seek to pair their world-famous parking lot 12 sausage with tall boys and a couple of flasks disguised as binoculars. No one got blotto except the sun by the moon. Kind of refreshing. On the show today, I spill about the parallels of the Obama administration and the Trump administration on race relations. It turns out that it's the subtle racism that's actually a little bit better than the overt racism that kills people in cars. But first, Malcolm Gladwell has just completed his second season of Revisionist History. It is an excellent podcast. And do I have questions? Because his wife says you know what that picture and that man means to you it doesn't mean to other people and you have to understand that and then in the interview they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in rolling stone magazine that pretty much ended his career where it uh, got to the desk of barack obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter And not to wallow in, he could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter, or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H.A are like the first three letters in hard b-i-n-g-e as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts to my mind revisionist history season two just in the books is the third greatest podcast of all time i would put serial season one and shit town uh, number one and two, and then Revisionist History. And and the reason that I put all of them as uh, the medal-winning podcast is they were the ones that as soon as they were in my podcast player, I was just burning to hear them. I couldn't really live without hearing them. I was antsy all day until I got to hear them. Uh, the different thing about Revisionist History is it's not so much a story, though it uses elements of storytelling. It's a thesis. Malcolm Gladwell essentially defends a thesis and tells his story. And here to tell the story of telling the story is
0: Malcolm Gladwell. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Mike. So happy to be here.
1: So to an extent, you are doing something new with the form. Was that your... That was clearly how you do journalism. I guess you just wanted to bring that to podcast also. And what, did you see any reason that it wouldn't work?
0: Well, I didn't really have any expectations either way. My impression of the medium, knowing nothing about it, was that it was sufficiently immature that I could do whatever I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. The flip side of that is when a medium is insecure, is is immature, the critics haven't caught up with it. So it's not just you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want and get away with it. No one's going to call you on anything. So you write a book these days. You know, you step one inch over the line and 25,000 people come down on your back. That's because books are a mature medium podcasts. I don't know. I mean, it's like the Wild West. You know, there's one sheriff and he's 100 miles away.
1: Well, it's also, I think, not just the critics. I think it's the uh, listeners or the audience's expectation. So there's a certain grammar to advanced medium. Uh, media and maybe you know Sergei eisenstadt was toying with that grammar back in the uh you know early part of the 20th century with film but then it gets kind of codified and if you try to do something different people will say well that's not how movies work but you're saying podcasts aren't at that point yet
0: yeah i was talking to someone about you mentioned s-town uh Did you say shit town shit town yeah. all right <laughs> um which a i totally loved and gobbled up in no time and was obsessed with like everybody else and b had a million problems with mm-hmm. and not one of those problems prevented me from enjoying it yeah which is genius that's the way that's an immature medium it's like we haven't kind of codified and hardened our critical positions so we're like what they just did was outrageous and i loved it like, yeah to me that that's just that's 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 Beautiful.
1: Well, let's take a specific episode of your season of Revisionist History where I had that exact reaction, Mm. which was the country music versus rock music's (laughs) ability to break your heart. And I disagree. I think I disagree with the premise overall, though you narrowed it. So it's hard to disagree with. Um, What you did is you looked at a list of the greatest country songs of all time and a list of the greatest rock songs of all time. And Splish Splash is on the greatest (laughs) rock songs. And there are some amazing George Strait songs on the greatest country songs. Yeah. In, as far as the ability to break your heart. Now, I said, this is an interesting thesis. I see what he did as a rhetorician. I see what he did by limiting it to the list of the greatest, but you could find many, many rock songs with great lyrics that will break your heart. Now, do you agree with that so far? That you could find many rock songs with lyrics that'll break well, your heart?
0: Yeah, there's a good, because there's been a million rock songs. Mm-hmm. So, can you find a couple that break your heart? Yeah, the question is in the main, does the genre lend itself to that particular kind of emotional reaction. And I think it's fair to say that rock and roll is more interested in extroversion and country music in the main is more interested in that kind of overt sentimentality.
1: That's true, but there might be just by sheer tonnage, more rock songs with really affecting lyrics uh, from an emotional standpoint than country songs, just because there are so much, so many more rock songs. I was thinking of Warren Zevon. I was thinking of Lou Reed. Do you know the song Dirty Boulevard off New York by Lou Reed? No It has many of the aspects of the country song The the reasons that you posit why country songs break your heart Is that it's a more specific milieu The people are writing about specific places for a specific audience And within that specificity, they're free You don't have to be a global brand You can get really Mm -hmm. tiny in the details Details correlate to heartbreak
0: Yeah Pedro lives out of the Wilshire Hotel He looks out a window without glass the walls are made of cardboard, newspapers on his feet, and his father beats him because he's too tired to beg.
1: Lou Reed's writing about New York. So if next- you're from California or or Lincolnshire or New Zealand, you might be put off. And also, New York, uh, this song, didn't go to number anything on the charts yeah. because it's not trying to be rock and roll as a global expression. It's just trying to be really specific to New York.
0: Yeah, 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 no. Are there a million exceptions to this theory? Sure. The fun of theories is not yes. the extent to which they are correct. Mm-hmm. It's the extent to which they're incorrect. <laughs> I agree. And
1: I think this is an example of the form not being mature enough. So it w- maybe a different form would say, you'd improved your thesis. Yeah. But I just got off on the joy of exploring the idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: And that, you know, revisionist history, when I think of those episodes, there's all kinds of different things I'm trying to do. And some of them I'm trying to make a very, very serious moral point, sometimes I'm just, I'm making intellectual mischief. Yes! And <laughs> that episode was pure mischief. Yes. I really, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to, I mean, it was a, really a profile of this songwriter, Bobby Braddock, and I wanted to give you a good reason to hang out with Bobby Braddock. And what's the best reason that I can come up with to hang out with Bobby Braddock is to hang a really interesting theory on him. And I think most people... I mean, even you, you're like, you bought the conceit, even though you had the intent, my intended effect was for people to quarrel with it. Yeah. And to think about it, and I
1: did, and uh, I looked up the most popular country song of all time. Mm -hmm. My record sold was Leroy Van Dyke's Walk on the Bay. And they estimate that something like one and a half million copies were sold. Compare that to the biggest selling rock song in the summertime by Mungo Jerry, 30 million. Rock around the clock, Bill Haley in the comments, 25 million. So I think we're, kind of comparing a niche product to such a globally expansive product that it's an unfair comparison.
0: That's precisely my point mm-hmm. that these two genres are operating in entirely different realms that necessarily have different rules. That when you're playing globally, you have to make adjustments. When you're niche, you get a certain kind of uh freedom. This has actually been a theme in a lot of my not a lot, but that I've explored a number of different occasions this whole notion that in in smallness and in mediocrity, there is freedom.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, why mediocrity, though? Well, You're medi- not saying— Oh, mediocrity. This is huge. No, but why does mediocru- mediocrity apply to these genius no, country
0: no, no, songwriters? No no, 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 I'm talking about—it about no, doesn't apply here. Yeah. But more generally, there is also—not with respect to country music—there is also freedom and mediocrity. Huge freedom. You know, the example I always give is—I I have a house upstate near Bard College— Bard is like a college. You who don't know it's a college of like what is it? A yeah. thousand, two thousand kids. It's a music school. It's like for geeky kids from New York who are into music. And I was watching the Bard lacrosse team workout. Really? Do you have any idea how bad they are? They're like <laughs> so terrible. And I was like, I could. I've never picked up like a lacrosse stick in my life. I could have been the best player on that team. <laughs> We're well, Canadian, I, <laughs> and it's the national sport. That alone. <laughs> but I thought that was beautiful. Uh-huh. The whole point is, if you go to Bard. Their lacrosse team is so mediocre. Anyone can play lacrosse, right? That's why if you go to Johns Hopkins, you can't play lacrosse unless you're one of the greatest lacrosse players. And There is no freedom in lacrosse at, at Johns Hopkins, right? So mediocrity allows everyone to participate. And there's something lovely. You know, I grew up in a small town, Ontario, which was music obsessed. It's the land of community orchestras and community choirs. They are all mediocre. (laughs) That's the point. I can't tell you how many times growing up I heard someone say who belonged to a community choir or orchestra, I'm a terrible musician or I'm a terrible singer. I love that so much. You can't be a terrible singer and be in a choir in New York City.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. On the one hand, globalization, the effect of globalization on the arts, it's always portrayed as a benefit to the consumer. You could live in a rural part of anywhere, subscribe to Netflix and see the world's best documentaries. But also, maybe it's convincing you not to participate. It used to be I just got back from Iceland. If you were an Icelandic person, you said, all right, I'm going to be a filmmaker and you could be the third best in Iceland and you'd be happy with that. Now you just feel like the 80,000th best in the world and you're not happy with
0: yeah. it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. In, so as a, speaking as a Canadian, what, can, what Canada, like a number of other small countries, have always done is put a fence around their cultural industries. Yeah. In when I was growing up, in Canadian Top 40 Radio was required to play a certain percentage of Canadian music. Yeah. As a result, there were a whole series of bands that existed in Canada that never you never heard anywhere else. And, you know, Burton Cummings, when I was a kid, was a huge, huge hit. I I venture to say his songs were never played more than once outside of Canada. But that's sort of what you're doing there, is you're trying to preserve the opportunities for the mediocre. And I love that. People never use that language. They always say that you're preserving the opportunities for, you know... Uh, uh, for future greatness. That's not what it's about. It's not about future greatness. It's about future mediocrity.
1: Yeah. Another fascinating uh, revisionist history episode was you did maybe three episodes on civil rights, three or four? Four. Four, four, four yeah. right. And uh, you talked about Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. And you made that interesting point that I hadn't considered before, what happened to the black teachers? Yeah. Was this an example of making a thesis to start a conversation or to get a rebuttal? Or do you think that the way that the Supreme Court actually decided Brown, you know, you lay out, it's not exactly what the Browns wanted, and it's not exactly what the uh, black population of Topeka was asking for. But do you think Brown was decided incorrectly? Or were you just trying to raise the thesis to point out that there are casualties of Brown that we hadn't even considered?
0: I think several things. I would say at a minimum i think it's plain that brown was implemented incorrectly so the comment that it was made at a certain point in that show i had tape from a black teacher saying she faulted them for not starting integration with the teachers before you bring in the black kids to the white school you bring in the black teachers to the white school that is absolutely correct so the strategy of of integration was flawed That it left teachers out and instead teachers should have been front and center. They should have begun the process. Secondarily, I read a lot. There's an awful lot of literature from black intellectuals over the years, kind of black nationalist intellectuals, who are very critical of the decision itself. Um, Not its implementation, but rather its language and reasoning. And I'm not sure I entirely agree with them, but I'm deeply sympathetic to them. They don't; these are people who said that the principal argument of Brown—that a black kid cannot get a good education unless he is or she is sitting next to a white kid—is wrong and offensive. The general assumption, be that integration was, or se- that segregation, rather, was purely an engine of black inferiority, was also incorrect. And thirdly, that it might not have been a bad idea to call the kind of white bluff in 1954 and said, You want separate but equal? All right, make separate equal. Yes. That's the that was the whole crux of it
1: that it seemed that the, the Supreme Court, the Burger Court at the time said separate but equal isn't equal so we must end separation. There was another way to decide that, to square yeah. that circle. Separate but equal isn't equal, so let's make them equal.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now that's I'm a very 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 mixed feelings about that argument. I don't know. It's a it's pretty strong stuff. It Uh, is. And
1: I think that for Topeka, what might have been true might not have been true for Birmingham or the Deep South or someplace where the black schools were the old example of, you know, age old textbooks. But if you have great teachers, you could overcome horrible textbooks, but still such underfunded schools that they couldn't even
0: compete. There's a better. But so here's the most interesting strain of that argument, though, which is a tactical argument. Mm -hmm. It says. So let's suppose you say the court says, all right, calls the bluff and says. You want separate to be equal, let's make separate equal. The strategic African-American intellectual argument is it was never going to happen. In other words, if you look very closely at the kind of local political dynamics of segregation in the South, in the 50s and 40s, it only worked because separate wasn't equal. In other words, if you were going to have two school systems, one for black kids and one for white schools, one kid's, That's a very expensive way to do your public education, really expensive. And the only reason that that system was able to be sustained is they were totally scrimping on the black schools and spending their money on the white schools. If you called their bluff and you said you got to spend exactly the same on both systems, there's no way that system could have been sustained. It would have crumbled of its own accord because you would have had to—white mayors and school superintendents would have had to go to their white taxpayers and said, Pony up! yeah. Right. That's not happen. Pony up four black schools. Right. That, and the point was, that's not going to happen in, in South Carolina in 1954. Now we're getting into really, really complicated. But wouldn't um, the effect
1: of that played out over the years be exactly what happened, which is that in all these places, there were no white public schools after a while. They withdrew from public school funding, maybe not in Boston, but throughout Virginia, where you had all yeah. these councils where essentially all the white kids went to a private school. It would have yeah. happened either way.
0: Maybe. I don't know. I yeah. mean, it's really I'm intrigued by but uncomfortable with that radical version. The version I like is integrate with black teachers. Yeah. That's the version that I'm most to comfortable sense. with. But what did Thurgood
1: Marshall ask for? What did the didn't he view it as a huge win? I mean, th- there were nine white people on the Supreme Court. Uh they were listening to the NAACP to the extent they were listening to any black people. The, what were the black what the, were the black voices saying at the
0: time? Remember the NAACP was uh very frank about the fact that black teachers were going to take a hit, and they said that's just the price of a social revolution. So it wasn't the NAACP that was raising the alarm about black teachers. It was local black teachers organizations, local parents, local black school boards. It was that. That's where the kind of—and there was a period, remember, um, Derek Bell wrote a really brilliant— was a black legal theorist at Harvard— um, who used to be a lawyer for the NAACP wrote a book in the '80s about Brown, in which he points out he talks about how he left the NAACP because by the end, what he was doing was he was defending the NAACP against lawsuits from blacks, not whites. It's like so many aspects of the American racial experience; it's complicated, and that's one of the things I wanted to do with revision. This this focus on civil rights and in this episode of this season of Vision's History, was I wanted to kind of lay bare the complication because I think we're immature enough now to talk about the complication. And I think more harm comes from pretending these things are uh, super simple than it is from acknowledging the complexity. Last
1: specific episode I want to talk about is the golf episode. Yes. Uh, It was presented as um, jogging through Los Angeles or trying to... Jogging.
0: You? Mike, I don't <laughs> jog. Come on. Do you run hard. Give me some yeah. respect. <laughs> you you're, run. Yeah, you're run.
1: running. You're, te- you're tearing up the road, and you're like, why are there no public places? Which leads me to golf, which leads me to the golf tax break, which leads me to an analogy about a Greek philosopher and the building of a ship. That was a good way to present it. But how did the actual ideas of the episode occur to you, where you asked the question, why do these huge swaths of what could be public land, why are they given over to the richest of people with the uh, most generous tax breaks. How did it really occur to you?
0: Well, exactly as I. It's funny. It's one of those. I I literally have for years been staying in the pool house of my friend in Brentwood, and like everyone in Brentwood who runs, I run around Brentwood Country Club, and I became increasingly annoyed by the fact that I'm running on this little rocky strip and there's this magnificent. The only park in Brentwood. There are no parks in Brentwood. I mean, there's there's the canyons, but I sometimes run in the canyons. You're running straight up for four miles. It's not exactly conducive to a nice afternoon run. And I was just like, I don't get it. And then more than that, I, what I didn't understand is I didn't understand how they existed given the potential property tax hit. You know, I'm a home, homeowner. I pay property taxes. Like every homeowner in America I'm stunned at how much I pay in property taxes. So here's this 250-acre, essentially, park, privately owned, in the middle of Brentwood. How on earth do they afford it? So that's what got me going on this. And initially, I had this... I used to joke, for years, I would joke, that I really wanted to join Brentwood Country Club or LA Country Club, and then lead a public campaign to rescind their... Once I learned to go to tax break, to rescind the tax break, which would force them... To sell the land and distribute the proceeds to their owners, that yeah. is to say, the members,
1: you realize by putting this out there, you've
0: totally submarined your potential membership, but that's okay. <laughs> so i was I would always joke. You want the quickest way to make twenty million dollars in Los Angeles is to find a way to join l a. Country Club and then campaign for their tax break to be rescinded, and they'll be forced to sell what's ten billion divided five hundred ways? That would be your cut. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the joke I told, but then I re- you know, I never wanted to do that. But I began to realize that that was—I just thought it was a, its an incredibly cool story about how privilege persists. And then I just, after that, I was like off to the races, I, you know, you know. And then I found that philosopher who I thought was fantastic. And
1: and the idea is, what was what's the name? Do you remember Theseus? No, I can't it's remember It's
0: the ship of Theseus. The, yeah, Theseus's ship.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so the idea is. If you rebuild his ship plank by plank as he's sailing, and then when he comes back to harbor, if every plank uh, is different from the plank he left with, is it an entirely new ship? Yeah. Which is an interesting question about change in general. Yeah. And it does have specific applications, say, to the tax base of Brentwood and other things in life. Yeah. But then again, are we ever really different people if all ourselves uh,
0: replicate Well, that's, themselves you know, this, is, this is why it's such a great argument because yeah. it applies to virtually everything. The answer is you are not the same human being as you were six months ago or five minutes ago or you've changed. Your cells are turning over even as we speak. So the the notion that you, Mike, of this moment are the same Mike that I met two weeks ago is a, a useful fiction, a fiction about identity that we have cultivated in order to make our lives easier. But there are all kinds of fallout for that. So, for example, I hold you to... Speaking much more generally and metaphorically, um, I hold you to very unfair standards when I say, well, Mike, two weeks ago you thought and said X and now you're contradicting yourself as opposed to saying you're a different person now. You've had two more weeks in the world. Why wouldn't you think differently about something? I mean, it calls into question all of the assumptions we have about the consistency of, of individuals, about who they are and what they think and what they say. Or groups uh, to take it to sports.
1: Well, I'm a Yankees fan because in the 1970s, these guys were on the team. Well, once there's 100% or the Derek Jeter team, now that there's been 100% roster turnover from the days of Jeter and Posada, are they still the Yankees? Well, you could, I guess, argue that the Steinbrenners own them. It seems to me that the way to identify something is still the same is very much caught up with the branding of the entity. So if the ship is called the ship, if the ship was called collection of planks, then we would say it was different. The Democratic Party, right? It's like, well, the Democratic Party was uh, filled with members of the KKK. But now since there's been a complete turnover of the Democratic Party, we view it as different enough when we need to or the same just because of the branding of the overall idea of it so yeah, much brand, depends upon
0: that branding is a, is in, is a, is a contrivance yes a largely 20th century contrivance that is invented to deal with this very issue yeah. right? to give some semblance of continuity to things that have to things that are in constant state of flux Right, Right. And if
1: we brand McDonald's French fries as McDonald's French fries, but we change all the important ingredients, are they still French fries? (laughs) They are not. (laughs) (laughs) And that is another episode of Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast on the Panoply Network. All of season two is in the books and on your podcast player. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. It's been over a week since Charlottesville, and Donald Trump has severed ties with the greatest locus of racial animus within the White House, Steve Bannon. Well, the most insensitive on issues of race other than himself, that is. Since then, since Charlotte, his popularity has suffered. Polls have come out. Uh, The issue of Confederate statues that has moved to the fore, but no polling organization has taken a comprehensive measure On race relations in the United States. They don't seem good to me, but what do I know? Then again, race relations often seem bad to Americans. At the end of the Obama presidency, Americans were sour on the progress of racial relations. Here's CNN reporting. This new CNN-ORC poll is striking in that it shows a majority of Americans, 54 percent, say relations between blacks and whites in the U.S. have worsened under President Barack Obama. 57 percent whites and 40 percent blacks. Actually, I hate this form of question. We're not asking people of one race, hey... What do you think of people of the other race? If you did that time and time again, like they do with, do you approve of the president? Simple question, consistent question asked all the time. If pollsters called up black people and say, what are you thinking of white people? And if pollsters called up white people and said, what are you thinking of black people, Latinos, Asians, we'd get decent data and we'd know what it meant. Asking Americans, what do you think of race relations? That could mean so many things. It can be if you're asking a black person, do you think white people hate you? Do you think they hate you more than they did a week ago? Or it could be a black person answering, I think things have gotten harder for black people. Or it can be a white person answering, I dislike blacks more than I did a year ago. Or it could be a white person answering, I don't, but I think my neighbors do. Or maybe the white person's answering, you know, no one I know has changed on our opinion of blacks, but I think the blacks hate us more. This is such a nebulous question. And also, it often has a temporal dimension too, right? Do you think race relations have improved? Oh my God, since when and by who? And basically, we're asked to imagine about what we thought of in the past and Compare it to what we think of now if we can accurately remember in the past. I mean, it's so bad and the question could be interpreted in so many ways that what we have basically is a proxy for how many stories of racial animosity are you seeing on the news? And given that the number one news channel for white America is the Fox News Channel, yeah, race relations don't seem good. Here was Geraldo Rivera at the end of Obama's term, so about the time that that CNN poll came out, talking about race relations. To me, the president has failed most profoundly in the area of race relations. Why? Because the problem, yes, there is a terrible problem with police brutality, but it pales in comparison to the ghetto civil war that's going on. This uh, black on black violence is not to be ignored. It's not to be minimized. And I have never seen the president get engaged when it was. An African-American killing another African-American or two gangs killing and and an eight-year-old is is killed in in the crossfire. Yeah, except the president did that all the time. President Obama did. Maybe conservatives didn't hear it because Obama didn't come out and say, we've got to stop having black kids killing black kids. Actually, he did say that, but that wasn't his major point of emphasis. How he would say it is, we've got to take the guns out of the hands of people who are killing other people. Black hands, black guns, black bodies dropping in the street might have been implied, but he talked about guns, not race. And I guess Fox News only hears stories about race. Here was Barack Obama addressing a joint session of Congress after the Newtown killings, talking about a girl who played at his inauguration and was killed in Chicago. She was 15 years old. She loved fig Newtons and lip gloss. She was a majorette. She was so good to her friends, they all thought they were her best friend. Just three weeks ago, she was here, in Washington, with her classmates, performing for her country at my inauguration. And a week later, she was shot and killed in a Chicago park after school, just a mile away from my house. President Obama really did try to achieve racial progress. Pollsters from Pew found that black Americans gave him credit for trying, and a slight majority said his efforts succeeded. 51% of black Americans said Barack Obama made progress toward improving race relations. 34% said he tried but failed. Among whites, however, 28% said Barack Obama made progress. 24% said he tried and failed. 32% said Barack Obama made race relations work. That number was in the single digits uh, when asked of Black Americans. Now, I'm going to say this. If you think Barack Obama made race relations worse by what? Always talking about race? By bringing up racism? Then I think your answer to have race relations improved is negatively correlated to race relations actually having improved. You know, there was never such a poll that I'm going to Imagine or described. But I'm sure if you asked whites in the antebellum South, how are race relations? And then you asked them the same question during the Reconstruction era, you would get an overwhelming majority saying, worse, much worse. In some ways, to a not insignificant number of white Americans, how are race relations really mean have blacks made progress, perhaps implied at your expense? Now, all of this. My problem with the race relations question, thinking about race relations under Obama, which were said to be so bad, so bad that President Trump campaigned on the slogan of how much worse can it get? Yeah, the answer is a lot. But the reason I was thinking about this is that we don't have a good poll post Charlottesville on race relations. And I know we're going to do that classic thing of how are race relations, which mean, can you tell me your perception of other people's perspective? Fantastic. Here's what I want. I want a pollster to ask Americans, is Donald Trump doing an effective job on issues of race? And I hope they follow up with, is Donald Trump a better president than Barack Obama when it comes to issue of racism and race relations? And finally, they should ask, in the years to come, do you expect there will be an increase in racism in the United States under President Trump or less racism in the United States under President Trump? I might want to break it out into, do you think there'll be an increase in anti-black racism or an increase in anti-white racism? Those numbers will be really illustrative. And I think if those questions are asked, there'll be some telling answers on many sides. Many sides. That's it for today's show. Dan Schrader produced the show. Today he was my sun and my moon, and I would stare at him and think, huh, my retinas are burning. Mary Wilson is a Gist producer. In 1998, she registered the domain Eclipse for a World Wide Web haircutting experience, and it has just now paid off. Steve Lictide is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. You know, on most days, days without an eclipse, he is right there, smack in the middle, of the solar event that is not happening. I call it the path of banality. The gist, trying to generate excitement for a curve in a plane surrounding two focal points such that the sum of the distances of the two focal points is a constant for every point in the curve. The ellipse. Ellipse 2017. Got your ellipse glasses? No? I should give it up? Stop trying to make ellipse happen? Okay. Okay. And thanks for listening.